0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris I'm Chris, how are you doing this beautiful Sunday evening?
1: I'm doing so well, David. I I get better all the time here. It's taken me a little bit to settle in. You know, as you said, that, you know, about moving into your new house, there's a little bit of a a psychological discipline, and, and even just kind of negotiating your steps from bed to toilet bed to refrigerator office to refrigerator front door you know all that kind of stuff but i was excited today to get a um my my doorbell actually rings you know no one knows if doorbells actually work unless someone presses the button they're working Mm. if if no one presses them, we don't realize that. We don't think about that. But I, I'd like to call that attention, you know, to that idea that a doorbell is ringing is working perfectly, uh, even if you know you never hear it, providing no one presses the button. Uh, but someone pressed my button today hmm. with a delivery of two things: uh, cabinet paint. Product yes. To uh, resuscitate my uh, kitchen, my bathroom, my laundry. And I think that's the major thing that lies ahead. My nieces do down on Tuesday to help me start sanding and painting. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. But I also took delivery of my textbook from Rutledge Press. Hey, let's which go. Is a, yeah, you know, it's it, 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 I think everyone who's published books will understand it never looks as amazing as what you thought it would be. You know, you think, well, my God, I poured my life and soul into this. But on the other hand, the cover is just vivid and fantastic. And it's going out to... I had someone write to me from Dakar and Senegal, which is one of my great world cities, and they've gotten notice of it. And I think, well... You know, if I can make it in Dakar, I can make it in anywhere. You know, some people, you know, think, well, New York or you know, Chicago or London or Paris. Or, I, I, I kind of want to have people read me in <laughs> Senegal, and I, I really feel grateful about that. And I thought it was interesting that the the, the authors' copies arrived uh, by the same hardworking, you know, dude who's out delivering stuff and. It's a scrambly sort of job. It's difficult, you know. It's not something that, you know, a lot of people want to do. And it's something that, I don't know, someone my age would, would feel a little bit challenged. I don't know if I want to deliver, you know, 50, 60 boxes uh, a day to doorsteps. Um, so I was very grateful. And um, he was really cool. And he said, well, you got you got something. Uh, I he said, I didn't look too closely, but... You get kind of different things there. And I said, yeah, yeah, they are different. And yet, and yet, you know, there's something wonderfully synchronous about uh, kitchen cabinet paint and this textbook that involves, you know, three or four thousand people down the years. And and not to mention, like, all the hours of my writing time. Um, maybe, Maybe it's all one meditation, you know. Maybe kitchen cabinet painting... Uh, I mean, I didn't ask those people how long it took to come up with a formula for that paint. You know, I'm just going, well, I, I want to sand my cabinets and roll it down. But maybe it's there's more connection there than meets the eye. So that's the mood here. How are Good. you doing?
0: Excellent. Over here, we had uh, family visiting from El Paso, Rios's extended family. So house full of 20 people 10 of them being children and these people make their own party wherever you go it's a party we went to Applebee's and that was you know just insane it's been really nice actually being a part of this family because I grew up in a very (laughs) uh, sort of humble modest white protestant uh, home with a small nuclear family where we were expressly told to keep quiet in public spaces these people did not get that memo got growing up right. so it's <laughs> it's rowdy and kids are jumping on tables and the waiters and waitresses look flustered and there are changes needed to orders <laughs> and somebody needs something to go because his girlfriend is at home pregnant and if she doesn't have her steak and potatoes she'll be a raving bitch so you know it's fun, man. You know, people are drinking margaritas, and then we go back to the place and we're playing baseball on the lawn, and a really good vibe, but completely exhausting. Just really, really tired. Uh, at this yeah, point, yeah, so. I hear that. I
1: hear that. I, I that's a lot of, of psychological energy to be pumping out. I, I think, though, that, that what I like is that you do get a lot back from that. Maybe not in the moment, maybe not directly. Uh, As in, like, there's still a need for a nap or or just, like, sitting out on the porch and going, God damn, get these family people away from me. But on the other hand... It's so much better than not having them around, isn't it? You know, it's better. I think that's.
0: Yeah, it's better. And I've basically, once I got home, I, I took a nap today. And when I woke up, I felt really out of sorts. And what I realized is that for the past week or so, I haven't done my routine of eating healthy and exercising and supplementing and all these kind of things. So I felt like shit. And I realized that, oh my God, this must be how most people feel all the time. No wonder yeah. everybody's in such a bad mood because I'm not used to it. I have a very strict and rigorous regimen that begins when I wake up. Uh, it's about timing when I eat. It's about timing when I exercise. It's about making sure that I have the proper balance of, of vitamins in my system. And I tell you what, get rid of that for a week and eat like crap, and all of a sudden you feel like the 99%. And again, no well, wonder. You know- no wonder they're so... They're just so animalistic,
1: online or
0: in person. It's because they feel awful. They have to feel terrible all the time.
1: Well, I you know I think what it comes down to personally um, is, is is just accepting, you know, a certain kind of of. I mean, routine is, is extreme. Routine equals OCD behavior, and I think that. The, the, the happiest people I know are those who accept kind of OCD conditions. I've got a new friend who, um, she's a very sturdy gal. Uh, she's Native American lesbian. And that kind of relieves a lot of, of, of pressure about stuff with our relationship. We can just, I don't know, just kind of enjoy each other's company. There's no pretense about, you know, something going forward. She's a field technician for the internet company, and a telephone lines person. So she's out and about uh, during the week, too early for us to go hiking, but we can hike together on the weekends, and she does own a small motorboat. and But what I really enjoy, about, and she's actually not a Native American, from this part of the world, as in, you know, the Southwest traditions, which I actually know a fair bit about. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun. She's from upstate New York and and Virginia. So she actually appreciates some of the things I know about Native American culture here without it being awkward at all. Um, And I think the fact that she's lesbian helps, and she's very confident in her professional skills, and we just enjoy hanging out. But we both are a little bit OCD in exactly the same ways, and it's it's kind of it's a relief, you know. You think, well, we you know we we went on a walk this morning, and we both came back to my place just to have a coffee on the porch, and uh, you know, we both washed our shoes off because they're gonna they're gonna dry out in the sun and the wind here pretty quickly, right? You know, right, right. It, it's not a big deal, and. It was just like, kind of like being a married couple in that sort of sense. And I think that just finding friendships, finding connection with people who are in the same groove, but support your routine because your routine is is very important. And and I I encourage listeners to investigate the word routine because it, 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 it has changed form and shape over the years. And it certainly has different connotations. For some, you know, in some cases, contemporarily, it's, you know, seen as very, very cool and good, you know, in a fitness or well-being sort of sense. But on the other hand, when we think of it in terms of job or responsibilities or, you know, other things that are kind of imposed upon us, um, it, it takes on a very negative connotation. So I think what we need to look at is like, appreciation of one's own routine who gets with that who doesn't how much of our life can be shaped around those because we all need certain routines in other, in, in order to function and deliver any value to you know our partners or you know little babies or students or, or business partners or whoever um Routine is, I think, a really crucial word in in today's landscape because we have very negative connotations about it that are unfair. And then we know uh, that there are some very positive things about it. And uh, I guess the bottom line is that if if we find people who support our routines, then we're able to deliver more back to them. You know, yeah, right?
0: That makes a lot of sense understanding people's different OCDs is really important I learned this um, very quickly over this past weekend this extended family are people who uh, are, is composed of people who I've lived around for a long time so I, I know their personalities pretty well but you know you being around these people has really taught me uh, when to tighten up and when to loosen up and I think that that, kind of uh, tightening and loosening this oscillating around other people's different forms of ocd or lack thereof is really the whole social game right so i mean i just have kind of learned when x person says why i just ignore it uh because i'm being baited or <laughs> you know or it's just it's supposed to be a joke it's supposed you know i've really learned uh I had a very specific sense of humor until I, you know, sort of got to know extended members of this family. And I realized the different ways people joke. That got me thinking a lot about how people communicate on, online. And I have this theory that, that a lot of people, a lot of the time, aren't being entirely serious, but they're taken seriously by everybody who sort of pays attention to them. I don't know if you've noticed this maybe on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. But somebody will post something, and you'll kind of get the joke, and then there'll be you know five or six comments on it about what a terrible person that that uh, original poster is because of something that they said, and you're like, well, you you didn't get that that was that they were kidding. So being able to interface with people in that way, I think is very uh, it's very important.
1: Well, you're ready for my Venn diagram. I know you love Venn diagrams as much as I do. I'm really starting to to, uh, formalize this as a workshop sort of principle. Uh, I mean, here's an idea, just just very informally, but I I, I think it could be taken very seriously. You know, you have uh, a wife in Rias, the mother of your child. There's an intimate relationship there that Mm -hmm. is uh, culturally respected and kind of not really questioned, you know, you you understand what's going on there. But if you do a little bit of Venn diagramming about the extended family, just do hers first. It's always easier to do someone else's than yours. Uh, You know, what does the relationship with her entail Mm -hmm. in terms of other connections? You know, and then you start doing some shading. I love pencil shading with Venn diagrams. You know, I'm right into that. I think that any kind of visualization you can give yourself helps. Even the cruder, the better, actually. Uh, But you start looking at and you start thinking of like, oh, well, there's this person here and there's, you know, and you start thinking about things a little bit. And you realize that, you know, everything is a ripple in the pond. There is no one stone thrown in the water without, you know, some repercussions. There's just not, you know. And and we kind of have, have been taught through the media and advertising in recent times that somehow we can control and, you know, customize our, our telephone plan to meet our needs and only pay for what you need. I mean, Liberty Mutual Insurance tells us that you know, all the time. Only pay for what you need. Well, anybody who's ever been in love with someone and, and they have a family that's still alive knows that that's not true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You do not only pay for what you need. You, I mean, and this is the beautiful thing about, and like in, in New Guinea, there's the WANTOK system. W-A-N-T-O-K, which means, you know, one one talk. But it, it, it's a it's a family network situation, which is really really influenced uh, democratic government there. Because if someone gets a gig somewhere, like you know the local police chief, they're obligated by social commitment that goes back ten thousand years, you know, to help out their family, and. Any kind of idea of like, well, this is like what new government and new democracy and new you know no, it doesn't really work. It's like, no, I'm I'm your brother in law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I ran over that person's pig, uh but you're the police chief and, and I, I I wanna walk on that charge, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. You know, it's just it's it's blood is thicker than water, so to speak, in that sense. But blood is certainly, certainly thicker than public policy. And I think it's interesting, the idea of like, well, when you have an extended family, and, and you're also looking at them uh, for support of, of Gus, you're looking at them as like mm-hmm. part of his life. You want him to have family, right? You don't want him to be out there all alone, some sort of little naked thing. So you're asking something from them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I, I look forward to how that goes. I think it's going to be exciting. And I think you're in a good position now, having been with Rios so long, that you that these aren't en- entirely new characters in, in the repertoire, you know? Right.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of them grow up, you know? A lot of people yeah. who I knew when they were kids have kids of their own that are playing with So there kids. you go. So... Uh, before we continue, Chris, can you give me my uh, imaginative challenge for the day?
1: I can. I can. I'm going to give you a choice. I, I, I think we need to get back to some choices. Okay. But the focus still here is on uh, thinking in young terms. Um I was out on my trail up to Red Mountain, which is, you know, pretty severe hiking. It's a 1,500 feet elevation sort of thing, which is, you know, not insubstantial. And uh, I heard, you know, there are are people walking past all the time. There are people doing the trail. And I, I heard an interesting exchange between a young boy, maybe six or seven, and his mother. And he asked a question that I think is really valid. Where did all the rocks come from?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I, I thought to myself, you know, that's the kind of kid question that I want to support in, in people who are 35 and 45 and 55 and 65. And even the people who, you know, are, mm-hmm. are dead. I want to encourage that kind of question. I want to encourage questioning from everyone. Because I think when you stop encouraging questions, uh, you are dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a beautiful question in this part of the world. Well, for starters, I would ask, well, are there many rocks? Really? Or are there a few rocks? And is the sense of plurality kind of an illusion? Mm -hmm. I think that's a big question that could be asked. The other question that I also heard, which has come up in in my personal past, uh, when I was in Australia, my my art studio, uh, I'd be out there sometimes, and uh, my cell phone would ring, and then I noticed that birds would imitate it. And I heard another uh, kid and uh, a girl and her mother walk past. I'm a little bit... I wish the father had been involved in that. I'm a little concerned about that. But she asked, why is that bird imitating a cell phone signal ring? And I thought, you know, I, I wonder those questions too. So I've got... You can choose between one of those two. But the imaginative challenge is, how do we validate people's questions? My idea as a teacher is not to seek students (coughs) who have the right answer. Mm -hmm. I hate that thinking. Mm -hmm. I want students who have more interesting questions. And I'm really pleased to say that our our last episode of the book club uh, really demonstrated and performed that in in just absolute fireworks color. I'm so excited about what uh, Nick and Mason came back with it was it was just invigorating on every level of my mental being, and although we had a small group, I encourage people to join us because there are some smart people who are part of this tribe, and uh, we Dave and I are very grateful for their involvement. Nick and Mason on two in two very different registers really delivered some insight. That inspired me about a book that I've read many times. I've taught over the years. I'm not easily impressed by people just coming up with, you know, breakthrough insights. Uh, you you, you got to kind of deliver something, you know, because mm-hmm. this I, I chose the book right, and they really kicked ass. So the support here is for interesting questions. You've got two to choose from. Where did all the rocks come from? Why did the bird, a bird, imitate a cell phone signal? What do you do when a six-year-old, and you're going to have a six-year-old soon, what do you do when that question crosses your desk?
0: Okay, I can do that. I've been big on um, asking questions like that recently. I've done it many times in my personal relationships and on some of the other shows that I've been on. Most recently the question that I asked and I didn't have the answer to this. We were talking about this famous scene from the fourth Indiana Jones movie, which if you want to pretend like that movie doesn't exist, that's fine by me because I feel like it's <laughs> a front to the original trilogy. But in that movie Indiana Jones survives a nuclear blast by hiding in a fridge, in a lead fridge, right? And Okay, so we all know that you can't survive a nuclear blast in a lead-lined fridge. That's fair enough. But then I started wondering, well, where where's the line of where you can and can't survive a nuclear blast? And frankly, I didn't know. I know that it's sort of common knowledge that uh, sort of blackly humorous that they would uh, have children run drills in their classroom where they would hide under their desks. The joke, of course, being that hiding under your desk isn't going to save you from a nuclear blast. But I started wondering, well, but where is it? Where's the line, right? Is there any way to survive a blast if you're not necessarily out of the blast radius? Is there a place that you could go? Could you, I don't know, hide in a ditch? These all sound uh, maybe stupid to people who know the answer to them, but I didn't. I, I had never thought about it. And I think that asking questions like that is good because we are, basically any, anyone who scoffs at that question and yet cannot give me an answer to it is somebody who's parroting received consensus wisdom, right, which isn't wisdom at all. It's just some a talking point that you're meant to memorize and, and repeat back. But I'm trying to get to this point where uh, teachers are famous all throughout high school and college for saying there are no stupid questions. Um, I'm trying to get back to that because of course there are stupid questions but I think we should lean into idiotism in an interesting and fun way and not get too hung up on our feelings getting hurt by being like, hey, when it comes to this particular subject, I am retarded. So help me, you know? Help me figure out how this kind of thing works. So I like this question a lot and I'll, I'll give the Well, I won't tell you which one I'm going to go with, but I'll give it some thought. Good. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you like it. I I don't think that, um, I can tell you honestly that academia today in a professional business sense, the business of taking tuition money from students in return for certification, I I don't believe that even the highest level schools, uh, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Um, all of of the Ivy League schools, all of the private schools, and some of the best, um, you know, secondary sort of private schools, I I don't think they do believe in the value of questions. And I I think they do believe in having a right answer. I I don't think they actually believe in anything other than, um, sadly, taking tuition money. So Mm -hmm. I'm grateful if, if you support that idea because... When, when, we, when we are no longer alert to interesting questions, uh, there, there is a name for that state of being. You know, we have, there, there are four, perhaps five states uh, of being in physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathy Acker gave us a very definitive uh, description of the state of being when we are no live, longer alive to questions. And it begins with a D. You know, mm-hmm. um, and then we can leave that there. Uh, so, with that, with that challenge in mind, and you've got your five words from which to choose two, um, do you want to report on last week's words? Were people listening? We're trying to get yes. people alert.
0: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You know? I Snap used, up, wake up. I used monastic and extinction were the two words. Yeah.
1: which were pretty sneaky and easy to sort of well they're not they actually weren't sneaky they were some of the easiest Uh, I have to say to people uh, tonight um, David is uh, so adept I'm going to upgrade the challenge every time and I have on my wall I like dials I like dials I like controls sort of I don't like control as an idea. I like it as a visual idea. So I have a kind of dial system that means nothing to anyone else, but I can kind of adjust it and it has a very satisfying click. Very satisfying. You know? Mm-hmm. It's tactile as well as visual. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna crank things up. So tonight's uh, we're, we're, we're going to go on a, on a straightforward uh, clockwise direction. So it's only at about three tonight. But imagine what it's going to be like when we work all the way around the clock. And David is really, really pulling out the intellect, <laughs> pulling out the sneakiness. Yeah. And this is what I really love about David. He's sneaky. This is such a good thing. We've got to get back to sneakiness as being a good thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's very important. It's very important in sexual relationships and meeting people and lobbying for jobs and getting work and survival and, and just just getting over in life. Sneakiness is good. We like it. And, we, and, and when we look to our popular entertainments, we love, you know, crime shows and con jobs and scams. And, you know, we love it all. So we're going to appreciate how David gets increasingly master sneaky over the next year. Because we're going to be doing this for a long time. Yeah. But I, I've got a dial now. And this is we're just getting started on this. So there you are on all that right.
0: front. Fantastic. So for today... Um I'm really interested I don't want to get to the tool right now cuz we usually save that for the end of the podcast but you sent me a very interesting picture that I want to talk about when we get to that. Last time we were talking about coherence, specifically the William James idea of us being cats in a library, which is a fun and I think very insightful metaphor into our relationship to knowledge in general. Of sort of being surrounded by things that we don't even have the language to talk about, and you brought up how that can lead to a sense of intimidation in a lot of people. There was also an analogy to a supermarket where all the choices can, in fact, overwhelm people rather than set their uh, their kind of sleuthing instincts, right? And we got to the the point where we sort of realized that in order to have the kind of gumption necessary to actually attack that library or that supermarket, you not only have to have a clear vision of where you want your life to go and what you want to spend time on, but you in fact have to have a coherent picture of death and an, an acceptance of it in its own way. So moving on from that initial conversation, which got a lot of... Really great feedback. I think that people really enjoyed the medicine in that particular discussion. Where would you like to take this coherence discussion
1: next? Okay, well, one, there, there are a couple of, of, of just quick shout-out back mentions to the book club uh, session, which was so inspiring to me. Nick brought forward the idea of, of the search for unmediated presence, which I think is a beautiful idea, which, which captures the subject of Robert Irwin, who is the focal point of, of the book club book. But the idea of unmediated presence as in something that we can independently decide. And I, t- if we index that against our library and supermarket metaphors we could say well is it viable is it valid to have a a personal response to these information opportunity delivery systems that is completely independent of the coding and protocols that underlie them and this would apply to anything uh the other thing which mason contributed which i think is was really a, a kind of, it was, it was so humbly phrased, but it really smacked me around my ears, is that to have an agenda it is not a bad thing necessarily. The question is, what is your agenda? The agenda idea of modern narrative media terminology is kind of been trivialized and, and negated and degraded. But to have a plan to have a structural idea is is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. The question is, well, what is your plan? What is your agenda? You know, let's look at that. Let's not dismiss it categorically in a Gilbert Ryle sense. Let's, let's just say, okay, well, you know, this, this is what we're talking about. Now let's look at the content of it. Let's get past that immediate structure. But here's a thought just to kind of come in from... A tangential angle, which is sort of my theme for the, 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 the tool coming up. I've been rereading Tur Heyerdahl. And I think people would know his work from, he was a, 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 a true anthropologist, adventurer, writer, who explored the idea that the Western Pacific was uh, inhabited from South America. And he did, you know, some very physical work in terms of uh, getting out on rafts, uh, mm-hmm. uh the raw expeditions. I, I would say this ties in with the theme that Dave and I started on last time of something that he and I really agree with and support, which is kind of also not happening anymore. I frankly find it hard to believe that we could ever have a Tor actually out on the water, Mm -hmm. uh, the open Pacific or Indian Ocean with funding from anyone and then writing a great book. For people who haven't read his writing, I think he's one of the best writers uh, I've ever encountered in any field, but I would certainly put him up with anyone you could ever mention writing about adventure, nature, challenge, uh, Peter Matheson, Farley Mowat, uh, Annie Dillard, anyone. I mean, he's just a great writer. But he has a line in, in the first book, which I think is a beautiful thing. And actually, David got me thinking about this book. I, I kind of returned to it um, when Gus was in progress, because uh Terhardall and his wife at the time, she left a... London Economics School. You know, that's big time. That's like Harvard. That's like Cambridge or Oxford. She left a very conventional, successful wife to, to be with him in the Marquesas Islands, which at the time was pretty hardcore wilderness, strangeness, pre-hippie stuff, you know? I mean, that was really wild. And I, I think that love affair would be a beautiful thing to film but in his book Hiva, which is the name of one of the key islands in the Marquesas which still remain for people who don't know uh, I, I think pretty wild strange places I mean I I, I don't know I, I, I wouldn't want to break down there I wouldn't want to mm-hmm. have a heart attack there if, if you think that everything is satellite photographed and all the world is known uh well maybe you should think about going there. And, you know David writes about the Siberian tundra. You know I think we can kind of take for granted that. Well it's all sort of suburban and and there's a Seven Eleven around the corner. Right. Well there ain't no Seven Eleven there. Is this a cannibalistic in the,
0: area? Is Hiva? Fatuhiba...
1: Well it was it was you know I mean I think that it's not like I mean cannibalism in in the Polynesian people is a little bit less intense than. My reference point of the Solomon Islanders, who were just, you know, right. the Melanesian people, were full that they, they, they were unapologetic about it. Cannibals, uh, you know, they, they but yes, yes, no, that there is a real thing about that, and it's a little <laughs> bit sort of um, north off off the channels of of some of 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 the boat action, um, and and of course the ship, you know, a boat is not a ship. Uh, which is still prevalent today. But one of the remarks that he makes, and this is so in, so emblematic of uh, a kind of thinking that David and I admire so much from, uh, you know, the pre nineteen sixties or sixties world of Terence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, John Lilly, a whole bunch of people who really were out in the world and, and really quite, maybe quite a bit older. You know, they weren't young. They weren't like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young starting to sing songs in L.A. You know, they, they were bringing a much older basis of knowledge. But he said, what an enormous world man used to live in. Mm-hmm. And David started off uh, our, you know, our discussion last time with with a, a proposal that one of the key points of coherence between his point of view and mine, and across the years, and my idea was hands across the years. What what connects a few things? What kind of coherence in co- in resonances are still in existence despite the age difference that we have? And his first gambit was. Uh, well, a respect for older ideas, indeed ancient ideas. So I wanted to float that idea first. Mm-hmm. What an enormous world man used to live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can see an angle of agreement on that for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see an angle of attack. Uh, I've written about how uh, people in Fiji, I love this story, uh, there's a thing about old men who could be lowered into the water and their testicles were supposed registers of tidal currents. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And I, I've actually written a piece of it and I think to myself, you know, I don't really believe that. I think some old guy was about to get thrown out of the boat because he was old and couldn't row fast enough. And he pulled a fast one at the end because he was smarter than the younger guys. And he goes. Oh, actually, we need to go this way. And he created a whole dynasty of, of ball reading title <laughs> masters. But I love that idea. But yeah, the idea is I'm not sure if 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 people did live in bigger worlds, or if people just lived more fully in extremely narrowly defined worlds. So, David, I'm going to throw that back to you for a response.
0: I like the idea that they lived in more narrowly defined worlds. However, I think that they lived in narrowly defined yet still heterogeneous worlds. I think that might be the key difference to where we are now because I think that there's a narrow uh, path to living that goes on right now, but it's so homogenous uh, globalization and the reach of things like the internet and healthcare being a big one right you know once you get a doctor moving in who is able to you know deliver babies without the babies or the mothers dying at a much higher rate than it used to be that is a an amazing medical accomplishment that should not be sneezed at But at the same time, I think it's safe to recognize that that comes with a price tag, right? That comes with giving up your mineral rights, for example, to the mines that are yet to be built that you've been living on top of for for generations. It comes with a whole program that you now have to read. Sometimes that program is religious in the sense of it being Christianity or Buddhism or Islam. And sometimes it's religious in... Well, it's the kind of religion that we're going through right now where it's this kind of uh, progressive ideology. You can't get the good stuff like low child (laughs) death rates without accepting the whole sort of plan. So this idea of, you know, what an enormous world people used to live in, I think speaks to, first of all, I think it speaks to the mystery, the not knowing of what's going on on the other side of the world having to take as truth um what the explorers report back to you right the not knowing in the sense of being able to fill that in imaginatively i think that looking at the at at, at the size of the world in terms of the space in which our imaginations are allowed to to get to work i think is absolutely true right i mean You'd look at maps and you'd see certain parts that aren't quite filled in and, and there'd be dragons. And I think it was a lot easier back at that point to like, to actually imagine that there would be dragons there. I had to very carefully say, you know, adjust how I said that so that I wasn't naming a, a, a current band that's just terrible that a lot of kids listen to <laughs> now. Um, but I th- So I think that there's a lot of ways to, to look at this from. I think on the one hand, there is this uh, globalist program that people have to get with that in a sense does flatten out the, 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 the kind of view that you can have on the world. I just got done reading a book called Audition by Ryu Murakami. It's a, a horror novel that was published in Japan and turned into a film that became very popular in the early 2000s. But in the book... Murakami talks about Japanese consumerism and how after the two A-bombs were dropped at the end of World War II, Japan began a long, painful, slow road to recovery. And by about the mid-50s, they had eradicated um, starvation. Nobody was starving anymore in Japan. And the author says at that point, people no longer had any... Any real needs because their primary need which was hunger was satiated but then globalism creeped in and he talks about how all of a sudden people could buy french wine glasses and german pipe (sighs) organs and all of this stuff and he says at that point the japanese became some of the most ravenous consumers on the on the face of the planet right because this whole world was opened up to them so i think that there is a there's a sense there of this looming Cthulhu-like specter of materialism and scientism and advancement—you know—nicely laminated floors and central heat and air that has a price for the tag. few
1: people could afford it in yeah. Tokyo and Kyoto and right, you know. Right. Moving more yeah. right,
0: moving more into like the eighties, right? Moving, moving into that—that's the progression of the program. That's the real progress that people are talking about. Anytime people say progress, it's a metaphor for becoming more firmly entrenched in this entire globalist paradigm,
1: right? You know, for people who who know uh, anything about contemporary. Uh, Japanese in translation literature, what David's just said, I think is a really beautiful lead into what I think should be an obvious, an obvious binary. You know, we talk about trying to avoid binaries and break them up, but sometimes they're so damn helpful. You know, they really are ways to see things. And I think Yukio Mishima versus. Haruki Murakami is, is a great way to to view uh, a conflict not just in Japanese culture and psyche um, I mean you, you've got two extremely well they're both male they're both enormously successful they're both prolific there's a lot of, of, of coherences and resonances but they couldn't be more different in terms of the values they're putting forward. And, the, and they're not, not in a propagandistic sort of uh, contemporary you know, social reform sense. I don't think either of them are on that level at all. Um, but I, I think that would be a fantastic uh, seminar to run of those two individuals talking through the mechanisms of English translation, which is fair enough with Japan now. I mean, mm-hmm. they, Japanese people can deal with that. Um, but I think they they, they, sh- they really would shed light on a modern, as in uh crisis in thinking that America... I, I don't know, actually, two American writers that I would put up so bluntly As ways to explain, not literary, fiction writers of significance. I I can't think of any two that I would put up that would be more instructive Mm -hmm. about how weird things have gotten and how wobbly they've gotten. Wobbly is a great word. I I love wobbly. You know, my porch is a little bit wobbly. And, uh, you know, I'm frankly a little bit wobbly, too. You know, and it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you just got to kind of deal with it. You just got to kind of, you know, adjust to it. You know, it's, you know, Maybe...
0: it, it, it's such an interesting comparison when you have Yukio Mishima, who was, you know, sun and steel. He had loyalty to the emperor. He was a brilliant writer, in my opinion. I've read many of his uh, novels and also sun and steel, who attempted to install... A uh, junta to, to to reinvigorate the the to bring the emperor back to prominence and of course yeah. when that didn't go through he committed ritual seppuku versus Haruki Murakami who has I think the Wind Up Bird Chronicle is a great book I I think that he's I think Kafka on the sh- on the shore is great too but I think he's he's much more you know he likes to run he's a runner he's uh his characters are constantly mystified by by women and you know they sit in their apartments and listen to jazz and they talk to cats and there is a real kind of you know uh, whimsical so it goesness to Murakami's work whereas Mishima's not confused about women at all or men for that matter he wants to you know he wants to fuck them
1: all of them right um well, but, but Murakami, you know, he, he did give up a 60-a-day cigarette habit before he started running marathons. Mm-hmm. So he's more than a little bit manic. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a lot of similarities in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it, the, there are some connections there of, like, I'm either going to be eating uh, no pizza forever, or I'm going to be, you know... I mean, he ran a jazz club and was up until you know, six o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. smoking cigarettes and drinking bourbons. He drank straight bourbon and, uh, and not many Japanese people do. And, uh, he gave that away to, to change his life. But I think there's a, there's a strange manic male Japanese, you know, uh, God, I kind didn't think we were going to get into this at all. So this is so interesting, David. I never know where things are going to go with you. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can have ideas about, you know, where things are going to go, and it doesn't matter, because we we just ricochet. It's the beauty of the podcast. Often, too. Yeah. Yeah, we Mm -hmm. ricochet off of the side. But, I don't know, for listeners, I I think it'd be interesting for people to check out what their impressions of uh, those two really amazing male Japanese artists. I mean, one is apparently uh, gay, although he's he's broke, you know, The Confessions of the Mask, which is... Available Through New Directions is about, I think, the most poignant sort of kind of coming out sort of Mm -hmm. story. Um, Mm -hmm. I I mean, they're they're just so different and yet so similar in many ways. I I, I think it would be interesting to flesh that out. David, you and I could teach a really cool um, seminar on that, like a weekend sort of deal about those two crazy... Yeah, and it would be a joy Japanese to go back, Yeah,
0: it would be a joy to go back through The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle and Sun and Steel and with an eye towards a sort of comparative <laughs> seminar. I think that would be really cool cuz I I think Mishima has been really interesting for his um, rise to prominence among small right-wing movements in the US recently, right? I mean, you will see pictures at times. This isn't common, but you will see it. Of people who have uh, sort of Hitler memorabilia and Nazi flags, and then that really cool poster from *Sun and Steel* of Mishima holding a katana with his shirt off, and to have a you know an ostensibly gay uh, guy be a hero for these disaffected men—I uh, I, just—it's I, 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 I find the um, well, you know, a lot of Nazis were gay too. There was a big culture of homosexuality at the at the kind of the top ranks of the SS uh, that has been written about but mm-hmm. isn't widely kind of acknowledged. There's a very homoerotic undercurrent to Nazism, but uh, well, I
1: understand that. I understand that. I'm not <laughs> sure that. Uh, you know, I, I, I think what I the the frame I would place on this is that. We are we are so hungry for symbolic connection that, that ideologies will now seek out anything that, you know, conforms to what they think they can, you know, process as a view. Right. I mean, when I first discovered uh his works, uh I, I just had no idea uh uh, of any political i i didn't understand his political point of view mm-hmm. about the resuscitation of imperial japan at all i, I was dealing with more the sailor of felt and grace of the sea forbidden mm-hmm. colors mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. things that were just more uh tactile and erotic and i spring i actually snow is great read too
0: s- have you read spring snow yeah
1: well that's part of the the, the you know the teratrology i suppose right. yeah um and uh, i i i kind of it was the only t- actually, th- to be honest, the first time I realized that he um, was gay, and I think that, that more formally, I, I think he should be called bisexual because mm-hmm. he had a lot of relationships with women and some beautiful women. Um, was a, 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 a recommendation from Truman Capote mm-hmm. about how important he was and that he should be. You know he should win a Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. um, and I hadn't read Confessions of a Mask by that point. But I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that he's just my, my the 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 final takeout for him is that I don't know. I think he was not forty five uh, when he committed. Oh yeah, he was. He was forty five. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he had produced an enormous amount of work that I find just. Fascinating, and I I think it's absolutely exciting that we got off on this path of two great Japanese writers when I had no Mm -hmm. no intention of thinking about that at all. So you're you're my favorite distraction, David. I mean, I don't know where we are politically or whatever, but
0: I was uh, um, I was I was tasked from uh, world literature today with reviewing a book on Mishima called Aesthetic Terrorist which is also, besides being a really cool name, <laughs> a really cool title, I should say, is a really interesting look at Mishima's work. And it, it really uses the ritual suicide as a kind of focal point for his whole thing, his aesthetics, his... You know, when you said that is bisexual, it's, it's interesting because he did have relationships with women um, his attraction to men is interesting and complex because he, it's almost just an attraction to the male form rather than men because he was very self-obsessed with his body. Right. right? If you read Sun and Steel, there are uh, some of the most erotic and loving passages about his own muscles. <laughs> that I think mm-hmm. I've ever read, you know, about anybody else, you know, he just he really liked that uh, aesthetic form. Um, yeah, this has been a f- really awesome tangent. But what do you think about the um, about this idea of uh, kind of what we were talking about in terms of the world being big because there there wasn't quite this uh, this globalizing program
1: in place. Well, uh, here's what I wrote down in thinking about this. uh, And I'm thinking about this for my next book, which is kind of emerging as something that is actually under contract. So I've got to kind of get my thinking a little bit, you know, focused. Because, you know, when people, you know, pledge a certain amount of money, they kind of want a little focus, huh? You know? Um, And I wrote down this. Values... Values, values, values don't go out of fashion fully, but protocols and formats do. The problem is that at some undetermined point in the fairly recent past, we have lost the habit. And now the capability of seeing the freight of values that protocols carry, embody, or express. And so, as a consequence, we are forced to accept or instantly deny claims about past consciousness without any potent means of reply.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great, and it's right along the same path, right? I mean, it's re- right along the same lines of what we're talking about. The system of protocols, uh, it doesn't retroactively get rid of core principles, or as you use the term, values. I like the word values as well. But it's, it, I'm hearing getting lost in the sauce, so to speak, of protocols Mm -hmm. and structure. And I feel like it ties in very nicely with what I'm talking about, too. It's a program, right? Programs are full of protocols. So, I do like that.
1: Well, you know, there's an expression which I learned in Australia, but I think it's very common in all world English Thing: Same cat, different whiskers. And it, 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 it... you know, speaks to our desire to seek continuity, and continuity is not coherence. They mm-hmm. are going to prosecute that idea. Continuity is a good thing, uh, it's necessary thing in fiction in art, and art and in life, uh, and just general sanity, but continuity is not synonymous with coherence. No. Nevertheless, same cat, different whiskers. Well, the idea of seeking coherence. Uh, Has meant for a lot of people seeing continuity Mm -hmm. as opposed to coherence. And meanwhile, there's a whole lot of different breeds of cats that don't, some of them don't even have whiskers. So a whole lot of things have emerged under the umbrella, not of grand values, which have not changed. You know, look, here's a really simple, practical example the Oscar ceremony. I mean, I don't know how many people are that interested anymore, but if you read the text, the copy about what the Oscars supposedly celebrate, I think you'd go, well, that's, that's good. That's cool. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. But the format, the format, the programming, the protocols are tired to the point of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And they have then in turn changed the values. You can have a great design for a building or a house. Mm-hmm. Just just your ordinary house. Mm-hmm. But if things start to rot within it, you know, if there's not an upkeep, I, I've just moved into a house that was, you know, vacant for I don't know, maybe a year. And I'm realizing how many things that, you know, need to be resuscitated. And also completely replaced. You know, there's no, there's no way around it. You can't just rebuild the girl from the ground up. You got to, no, I need a new girl. This isn't working. I need, you know, this isn't working here. It's not going to be functional. Right. And I think that we underestimate and have underestimated. My view is, I think this started post-war war with the rise of the management business associate, you know, the MBA programs, Mm -hmm. a kind of bureaucratic uh, idea that you could train people to be managers. And we could train people in protocol and form and format. And it was independent of real knowledge and depth of uh, real understanding of a business. I, in, in, in the next couple of episodes I want to talk about some of the great people I've met who um, kind of follow on from our, our book club sort of idea of people really skilled just doing work with their hands mm-hmm. and whoever find me that one person probably I went to school with them back at Dartmouth you know who devalued someone who could actually do something with their hands i want to get my hands on that person's throat sure i want to beat them into the ground no i want to actually squeeze their eyeballs out live on youtube because they destroyed a whole level of credibility and deep value in not just a class system but a skill set that we should all be very very grateful for uh i mean you know i i Guy came out to check my air conditioning system here. You know, it gets to 112 degrees here easily. Easily.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the guys, you know, not some sort of, well, they certainly didn't send a woman, did they? i got to say that. I've got to say that for a moment. The guy who came out was Ethiopian. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the, ch- and, and he was articulate and You know, just really... He said, well, you know, I think you've got about six more years in the system. And then you really need to... You know, you you will need to to upgrade for a whole new thing. But you've got six years, in my view. Well, that means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money right now, you know? And I appreciate these people with skills. I appreciate these people who are diligent and capable and, and, and expert in fields that I'm not... And, and the management, the MBA culture has, has just meant the undermining of, of all of these people. And I, 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 I don't have much hatred in my heart for many people, but I do for them.
0: Well, it seems um, before we move into the tool here, I want to table a couple things for our discussion next time. Because the first thing I want to say is what you're talking about sounds a lot to me like cybernetics uh, developed by Norbert Wiener during the war. And then applied en masse to society. There's a great book by Tikkun called The Cybernetic Hypothesis, where they talk about Norbert Wiener, who was tasked with creating a missile system that was capable of not only targeting a plane, but being able to adjust for the airplane's speed and trajectory, right? So the invention of missile defense systems directly led to a series of cybernetic, um, and then from there on, automated control systems that were applied to uh, everything from the college system to government, to kind of how everything works. So I want to table that. And then the, the kind of final question, right, to, to go back to something you were saying a little bit earlier of continuity versus coherence. Would you, would you reckon that continuity is synonymous with linearity
1: it's exactly that it exactly ties in with what we were talking about last episode the difference between linearity in arithmetic progressions versus geometric or exponential dimensional progressions and that's the problem okay it's not that there's nothing wrong with them Uh, You know, full stop, but we don't want that to be the gold standard for all uh, progression, sequence, management of change ideas, which in many people's minds they are. That's the problem with the
0: the linearity
1: focus. I think
0: that that is a huge idea,
1: and uh, along with
0: cybernetics, I'd like to table it for now, but I want to pick up directly with that idea that coherence does not equal linearity or continuity.
1: Well, and, and to, I, I think it's beautiful you mentioned Norbert uh, Wiener who, um, his book, is, uh, his core book which is available to everyone and I think very readable outside um, cybernetics or information science or any specialist, everyone listening to this program would be able to to uh, read it and understand it. Uh, that is where you will find the, the idea which I have often repeated is that the frequency of oscillation of one system is capable of changing the frequency of oscillation of another system. And I think that's a beautiful model of a lot of things um, for good and for ill. I think it's... Um, I, I always thought of that in terms of my marriage, yeah. <laughs> my main marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... Um, Continuity versus coherence, I think, is really um, a good way to introduce the tool for uh, this time because it is about linearity versus dimensionality. It's about uh, mechanism versus uh, an organic appreciation of things. Um, It's about tangents. And a tangent... I encourage you to look up deeply. It just you know even on a Wikipedia basis, you'll, you'll get an idea. But the Latin is about touching, can you? Um, touching curves. Now, I don't know about you, but I want my whole life to be about touching curves. I like touching female curves, curves of rivers, curves of interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very, very cool idea. Secondly, and I know some people will, will be angry about this, but in my view, anything that attracted the interest of, of the likes of Euclid and Leibniz is worth my attention. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I don't think we have to glorify Western culture to get with some of the cool things that it did. Mozart's second instrument was a violin, and he didn't think he was very good. Haydn, older, and a tremendous egotist, said of him, he does in the violin without effort what can't be done. Mm. We need to have some humility again about these people. Miles Davis was asked, are you a good musician? He said, well, Vernon Wells, my music teacher in high school, thinks I was okay. And, you know, Dizzy Gillespie hired me. You know, we need to remember that the great people who have created our culture actually had an enormous amount of humility uh, about what they were doing in their own lives. But tangents, think about... uh, There's a trigonometric idea of tangents, but we often have this idea, well, he went off on a big tangent. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, we were talking about something important to me, and and that is exactly the problem of metaphor, of using words that have specific meanings within specific disciplines and then kind of railroading them into another form. I would suggest, and I think David is so often a live performer of this, where coming in at a tangent or a strange oblique angle is the key to a whole new level of thought. Yes. Be alive to that in your life. People are not going to be linear. Do you really want a linear response to anything you say? I would suggest you want an exponential or even a really interesting tangential response. Conversational energy is curved. Mm. I'm the first person who ever said that. Conversational energy is curved. If you want coherence, you will seek tangents touching that curve. Not violating that curve, not breaking it. You know, have a look at what a tangent looks like in 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 geometric visual graphic terms. It's not violating curve, it's touching
0: it. Or read read a novel by Chris Sackison. Because your novels well, are thank highly you. tangential in a way that is really unmatched. I think that literature in general is a tangential art form. I think it doesn't matter if you're a maximalist or a minimalist. I think that the real good stuff, the sauce of books, is in the tangents. And your sentences go on tangents. Your, your paragraphs go on tangents reverend america is one of the most tangential books that i can remember and also one of the most is that in print is reverend american in 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 print yeah it
1: still is uh, by some mechanism i'm not sure i'm not actually in charge of the mechanism of that but i i think once uh you know if some good things happen with uh uh, private Midnight, I think all of these things will come back. And, you know, yep. it, It's not dead yet. Nothing's, nothing's gone.
0: But can know? you please repeat what you said about, about tangents there? That, that phrase that you invented? I'd like to hear it again.
1: Well, it, conversational energy is curved. There we go. Okay. Therefore, all of our psychological energy should be about touching the curve i mean you know can you touch something without killing it can you can you bring something to fruition to orgasm to fulfillment to to sharing with someone else whatever whatever the situation is you know it, it, it's about tangents are about touching and i think that's it it's incredibly strange that we have this quantitative thing of like Oh, so-and-so went off on a tangent. You know, it's like, well, you know, that could be really cool. That could be like the ricochet of a bullet. That could be like a new pl- program of ideas. Let, let's think more positively. I, I, I'm i getting a little tired of all the negativity that is inbuilt into the postmodernist supposed intellectual framework. Uh, which is really just, you know, it, 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 it presents as being in favor of, of race and gender and identity, politics and things. But it's really just kind of negative about a lot of cool things. Let's look at just coming in at an angle that is unexpected. And, and this is what diversity should be. If we're actually inviting people in, say, you know, you have a, a little street meeting about something and you invite people from your community in, uh, the last thing you want is, is for some a homeless person to be escorted out of there because they, they actually provided a kind of tangential point of view. Yeah, they exactly you know? right. It's a way of dismissing people. Don't dismiss people, embrace people. Embrace possibility, embrace the oblique angle. The oblique angle is, is where so much is, is interesting. And I, you know, in a very, um, well, it's an oblique reference, but um, I mean, who could be bigger as a poet than Walt Whitman? You know, mm-hmm. but look at one of his smaller poems, Sparkles from the Wheel. You know, that is a moment of real tangential conflicted feeling about the rise of industry in America in the mid-19th century, sparkles from the wheel. I mean, <clears throat> there's nobody who's done anything even close to that in my lifetime, <laughs> I can tell you. I think that was a, that's a really... And it's not even anywhere, you know, in, in his famous, you know, mm-hmm. Canon, Song of Myself, and, you know, I Sing the Body Electric and all these things. No, sparkles from the wheel. Check that out. Coming in from an oblique angle. Look at, you know, and, and here are some other, you know, reading ways to think of this. William Hazlitt is an essayist is that a lot of people don't know. Well, I haven't met anyone smarter than William Hazlitt, except maybe, maybe David on his best day. Maybe. When he doesn't have any responsibilities and he's, you know. William Hazlitt. If the world were good for nothing else is a very fine thing to speculate upon. No one else said that. That's a beautiful thought. You know, know, we look at Shakespeare, and we think of like Hamlet and Macbeth. I don't like Hamlet at all. Macbeth I love deeply. But you know, the smartest person I've ever known said, Read measure for measure. Mm -hmm. Go off, off key, off balance. Mm Mm-hmm oblique angle, something not part of the repertoire, not part of the main thing, you know look sparkles from the wheel, you know, go off channel tangential, Mm -hmm. you know everyone goes, well you, you know that's tangential to the topic well, the moment you hear that (coughs) flee from that person because everything interesting, everything interesting is it a tangent to the circle of your life
0: that's great and i think you sent me a text with a picture of a line graph with a sine wave and a declining line which i think is interesting if you think about the sine wave as the tangential conversational coherence creating uh uh, form there but then that line that goes through it seems to me to be suggesting that linearity terminates at zero which is uh, also a fun contrast to the, to the tangential nature of the sine wave. So I thought that was cool.
1: And it suggests that, you know, in a, in a, in a relationship sense or in an interview sense, my new book, uh, which uh, I, I've shared the, the general concept with David, we're getting nearer actually to uh, some sort of uh, agreement about, but he's encouraged me to maybe not accept uh, the, the contract as offered and, and look a little bit broader terms. And that is one of the crucial elements of the book because I suggest that we all need a lab partner, a dive buddy, uh, someone who we're not sleeping with to, to give us some information and feedback and to challenge us to tangential angles, oblique perspectives, uh, and, and maybe... You know, I mean, we all know that's ancient wisdom of, like, you know, have someone you can, you know, run a few ideas by. I mean it a little bit more formally, and David is delivering on that. But I think that that one of the things is, is don't lock into any kind of linearity without running it by the smartest person that you know. Just think of that as a simple idea. I mean, doesn't that sound like, that's like my roofer. You know the guy who just you know was was on my roof with a big beard. He can understand that. He's right down with that. Don't don't do anything until you talk. You know until you talk to Bud or or David or whoever it is. You know just you know don't do anything till you hear from me, as the old song says. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. just channel things out a little bit.
0: Well, I uh I would like to. Uh, qu- kind of quickly move into the challenge that you gave me. Yeah, me let's hear here. it, David. So, I, of, of uh, course. I'm I'm, I'm, right. I'm
1: going to send you back to school a few more times, but this was a good one, I think, of really kind of a, I don't know, I, I, I think with Gus growing up and, and, and you heading into your, I don't know, I guess it's you know, I guess the truth is it's your mid thirties, man. Um, trying to keep you young, trying to keep you kid wise. So hit us up with what your response was on those two choices. Just to remind people, I gave David a choice between two kid remarks that I've heard recently in real time. Where did all these rocks come from? Kids walking kid walking with a mom in back of my house, and then an obvious moment where a, a bird, probably a mockingbird, uh, it, it imitated my cell phone signal, which is something I, I, I've had experience. I've had experience with in Australia and New Guinea. And uh, a young girl in this case asked about, well, why does the bird do that? So we gave David two choices. Here's his response.
0: So I would go with the bird, the the bird example. Um, it's the most interesting one to me because I think it gives an opportunity for, uh, a discussion about perspectivism. And if the question posed to me was why does a bird imitate a cell phone ring? My question back would be, what do you think a bird thinks a cell phone ring is? And I think that would get the wheels beginning to turn. I think the next question would be, why do birds make noise at all? What's the purpose of a bird attempting to? Is it attempting to communicate, or is it doing something cool? Is it is it actually performing a kind of art in its own way? Does a bird make noises because it likes the sound of the noises that it makes, right? And I think that would open up a really interesting conversation. Of you know, is this an example of you know a kid in Philadelphia uh, hearing? You know rick james on the radio and recording it on a tape deck and playing it back and then rapping over it right is that what the bird's doing is it sampling the sound of the phone or you know is it a more in my opinion kind of boring explanation of you know well the bird thinks it's another bird and it's trying to communicate with a stranger right the bird's having a close encounter of the third kind with an iPhone 13. <laughs> um, but I think I think that that would I think that the the rock question would be interesting from a geological standpoint of being able to think like well, what did everything look like before it looked like this? Right? What happens when you take a cookie and you smash it with your hands, right? It crumbles out. Did something like that happen with rocks? Did something do that to the rocks or is it just
1: yeah. Okay. Time. That's good. But, that's but, good. Yeah. But
0: overall, I'll wrap it up there, and I would go
1: with the bird example. Okay. I I, I think that's lovely. Uh, I I I think you you did do justice to the rocks issue. I I think what 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 I would say about the the rocks uh, issue is not only the geological, which is kind of obvious in a sense, but but the notion of plurality that we 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 pick up on almost before we're aware of it. I mean, what are there really many rocks, or is this just really a, a different way of looking at one rock? How do we differentiate one from many? That to me was kind of, when I was walking, I, I was, you know, discreet distance behind this uh, woman and her child. I didn't want to sort of hurry them. Uh, I did want to hear what they had to say, though because I'm a natural eavesdropping, uh, you know, person. Uh, so I, I did want to know about that. I think that, that, that question of when we learn plurality versus singularity, which is one of the great philosophical questions there can be. I mentioned last night. you know, the Greeks asked two. The Greek proto-scientist philosophers, I should say, asked two great questions. Is the world one thing or many? Is change real or is that an illusion? Um, so, are there many rocks, really, or, or really is it? Should we talk about rock? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah. But I really love good. your. Yeah. I love your focus on the cell phone because that's that's to me. I think. Um, oh, I think that's just the most astute uh, thing in terms of teaching and learning. And I'm I'm, I'm honestly you know testing and probing and, you know, kind of uh, festering you about your your teaching capability because I think you're naturally a great teacher. And I also, as kind of this, I don't know, weird, uh, you know, secondary metaphysical sort of godfather, sort of, you know, other presence in Gus's life, I want to always just be... Uh, festering you to be, to be the great teacher that you can be that way because you are a naturally good teacher. Not everyone is and there are a few deciding points about that. Um, I, I, I want to call attention to what defines that because um, I want to be more and more programmatic and specific in my life and in my communication. David's first uh, answer what uh, was a question back. Now, that is a beautiful rhetorical sort of uh, point of view. Uh, it can be a, a gimmick in certain hands. It can be like, well, what do you mean by that? You know, it's like, that's not what he asked. That's not what he asked. He asked the legitimate question in the terms of the legitimate question raised. So I want people to think about the legitimacy of questions, the tonality, how, how respectful of questions coming at you are. You first of all have to catch the ball. Catch the ball, that that's a really good starting point, point. and then if you want to throw the ball back with some speed on it, maybe you should think about where, what direction the ball came from, you know. Maybe you should think about a little bit of what would be a respectful throwback that would say, "Game on!" Game on is such a great thing, you know. You look at animals, you look at dogs going, "Yeah, look, let's play." You know, and, and humans lose this. They're all so afraid of being challenged and, you know, confronted. It's just all this, like, no, I can't compete. No, please, no, I don't want to play a game. I might lose. You know, don't have that attitude. If you have that attitude, just give it up. You know, if you're under the age of 25, for certain, give it up. But if you're under the age of, of death, give it up have some fun with questions but know how to tonally open things up what 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 was the other thing that david did i'm not going to tell you because i i have a really good memory (laughs) yeah that that's the subject of my next book i'm not going to just give you that answer i want you to actually play it back if you need to uh you know that's okay it's okay to play things back, but I'm not going to hand you the answer to what was interesting about the response. I think I've said that there was the, the initial reaction was to ask a question that deepened the game. Deepening the game. Can you imagine anything more fun than that? I mean, can you imagine being out on a first date you're really, you know, something has gone wrong in your life. You're, you know, you're alone suddenly and you meet someone and you think, oh my God, this is just going to be terrible. And suddenly they deepen the game. They, you hear the click. You hear the click. You know what a click is? You know, it's like if you ever stolen cars, you know what the click is. If you've ever done a lot of things, you know what the click is there's an important element there of opening up the field of possibility. What if we all took on that responsibility in every interaction, however small. You could be at the Albertson supermarket talking to some fat bearded dude who hates being there. What if you said, look, my my gig here is to open up something. It might only last 25 seconds. I don't want to be here forever. I want to load my stuff into the car because it's you know it's refrigeration you know necessary. But just think about that. I encourage people to to look back at David's response about that in terms of first of all a questioning response, which is not just the bat the ball back rhetorical well what do you mean by that? You know, or or some sort of simple deflection, kind of just kind of a really ugly judo move. That's not really very cool. To to a genuine teacherly idea of like, well, let's pursue this. Let's pursue this together. You know, there is that possibility. What happens if we? Yeah. What happens if we're stumbling along some sort of stupid path, talking about something that that is completely foolish. But we're doing it together, you know. Maybe, you know, that becomes like a, a, a trivia category, and maybe if we're really good at it, it becomes a whole new angle on popular culture, and maybe it becomes something that we build together as a relationship idea, and maybe then we start collecting things and we start actually making money because we're experts in that field. You know, mm-hmm. never underestimate the the, the value of starting with a sincere question. Just be sincere. Jack Kerouac said, I want to be sincere. You know? And he's laughed at by a lot of people or dismissed by a lot of people. But I think he was a great prose stylist and I think he was an honest uh, writer and I think he was grown up enough, although he may not have been grown up enough for some people's days. uh, I think we should all be grown up enough to be sincere, to be open to ask honest questions I mean what could be more enticing than someone comes to you sort of open handed asking a, a legitimate question
0: mm-hmm. absolutely I love that that's great how about you take us out on a tip and a dream
1: okay well I'm gonna get back to ground level you know and I think a lot of people can understand this I, I've moved into uh a manufactured home, and if you want to call it a mobile home or trailer, you know, I'm not going to fight you about that anymore. You you walk into my house and you... Yeah, it it ain't no mobile home or trailer. But I don't care. If that's the way you want to think about it, I like that. And my neighbors do too. We live in one of the most beautiful and expensive trailer parks in southern Nevada, so I'm all fine with that now. But I needed to... uh, I need to replace my washer and dryer. You know, the hard thing is when you move into a place that's been vacant for some time, you know, it's getting clean. Cleaning the place, you know, yeah, it, it, it's a deal. And, and getting yourself clean, you know, you want to be clean in bed, you know. I mean, that's really important. So I decided I, I really had to get a new washer and dryer. There were these you know old beige coffee cream things from 1983, which even at my age that seems like a long time ago. They weren't using water well, they weren't using energy well. they weren't working. So I went to shop around and um, but I am living in a manufactured home which some people you know, Poidy Toy people, one might say, is a mobile home. I don't know how mobile it could possibly be. Uh, <laughs> but I thought, well, I don't want to like really get you know too crazy here. And I thought I looked around though at every all the options. I looked all around all these great European brands. And I'd represented Bosch, you know, one of the largest um, private companies in the world in the past as an advertising agent. And I looked at their product and I looked at all these things and I thought you know, I I frankly don't understand some of this stuff. And I went back to the old Whirlpool brands. Whirlpool, white, not stainless steel. I mean, that's for some younger people. I, I, I like white appliances. You know, I can see the dust. I can clean it down. I don't know. Whirlpool interests me because I I think it's a wonderful achievement of brand over name. I mean, who wants to fall in a Whirlpool? And yet they become synonymous with, with credibility. But what I loved about them, I turn, I look at my dryer, I look at my washer, and it says things like bulky items or towels. And it says, hold to start. You know, I want a girlfriend that says that, you know? Like, y- you can work with that. I looked at all these European brands, and there were like 15, 20 different sort of instructions. And it was like, I didn't know where to begin. And I realized, now I got to accept I'm old school. I- I- I'm a whirlpool guy. And I think for all of the emphasis on identity politics today they are often in violation of some deep truths about ourselves personally and psychologically. I don't think that we're that complicated. I love a washer and a dryer that says bulky items or towels and tells me hold to start. I know how to work that. And I don't have time to worry about 15, 25, 35 European and other, you know, glamorous instructions about what to do. I mean how many different kinds of laundry do I have? I don't. I don't. I'm a whirlpool guy and I found the products that work for me. and I think that we're offered uh, too many choices that that actually degrade. this is this is an extension of, of the idea that Dave and I talked about. We've talked about variety or supposed variety, and options. Consider your options. Well, what if you don't fucking have any options? You know, your back is to the wall. You're not that bright. You don't have the education. You can't afford to go to Harvard. What What then? You know? You know, all this idea that everyone has options. Endless options. I'm sick of it. It's a scam. But what happens if you just accept the fact? that I like a really nice smelling sheet that I can put on my bed without a worry and I want my machine to function and not spend too much water and I want things kind of simple you know what happens then you know, and that's what people really want. They want things just to work. They want things to work intuitively. Bulky items, towels, are you, wa- are you washing a rug? Imagine something, like all the fancy things we're going, well, no, these. Like, like, how much weight is it? I don't know how much weight something, I'm not going to weigh a throw rug from my hallway to put in there. I, you know, like it's a bulky item. You know, let's get some things intuitive. Let's get things clean. Let's get some things on the bed. Let's get more happening in the bed. You know, that's what I'm concerned about. I want more things happening in my bed. I don't want to have to worry about all this laundry stuff. So my tip is accept who you are in identity terms and refuse all identity politics and all the complications of marketing options that are offered. I'm old school. I'm a Whirlpool white appliance guy, you know, and that means something about my age, maybe something about my mechanical, you know, inclination, something about my tech savvy, something about my income, you know. Yeah, all right. Well, fair enough. I just want something that works, you know, mm-hmm. and you do too. Whatever your level is. Yeah. Dream time. Okay. Well, this is interesting because I've now I've, I last time I, I was you know so comfortable in my bed I wasn't I didn't have a dream. Well, now I've I've kind of gotten into my my bed and I did have a dream, and it was kind of a disturbing dream. And I was so pleasantly sort of I had some chicken fajitas that I was really proud of. I was really kind of in a good groove. I went to bed kind of feeling, you know, kind of, you know, you know. I I I was good. David, you're laughing. What what what's so funny something about that?
0: chicken fajitas just tickled me. I don't know what it is.
1: Oh, that's good. Well, you cry at weddings, so I never know what you're capable yeah. of. You're always surprising. I cry at every wedding without fail. It doesn't even matter if I don't I like love the people. That.
0: Doesn't matter if I don't even like them. There's something very beautiful about it. I can't help it.
1: I I I I that 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 cheers me no end. It I I I've cheered up at a few weddings, so you're not completely alone then. But in the in the dream. I found myself, and here I am in the midst of a real quiet, for the first time in a long. I mean, there's no sound here. If I hear any sound, it's like a, a morning dove mm-hmm. on my roof in the middle of the night. It's like. You know, it's very fucking quiet. Oh, excuse me. Very quiet. Um, But I I encountered this group. I don't know. I think there were about ten of them. But they were big figures. Clad in black mesh, nylon. uh, Absolutely skin-tight body bag suits and they kept saying we want the foot we want the foot and I was in the dream on the edge of a dimensional wall or some sort it was more diaph. it was more it was diaphanous it was like a, a membrane not a wall and and they were wanting my foot Which was growing bigger the more I slipped through the membrane, the more control they had over me. There were too many of them for all of them to grab onto me, but there were like enough, like for four of them to really have muscular control. And I felt my foot being dragged through this membrane. And and I heard a sound and I'm really into music lately and sounds because I've finished my first uh, full album on my own and I'm really proud of it Uh, and I'm hoping we can somehow get it out to the world but I heard this sound and it wasn't percussion and it wasn't any kind of instrumentation, I could really put my finger on. But I thought, oh my God, that's a rip in the membrane. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I've got to fight back. Mm. And they kept saying, these black, they they were completely facially covered, you know, black mesh nylon. We want the foot. We want the foot. We'll bring him through. And I fought back. And I woke up and I looked at my nice contour sheet and I ripped a segment into it, digging in with my foot. And I have not had a dream for quite some time that has been so physically located in in so-called real or waking life as that. They wanted the foot, whoever they were, Black mesh nylon bag people, but I was fighting back. But I did rip the sheet, so I'm headed to Target or you know wherever to get a new set of, of, of sheets. Uh, but it was kind of a beautiful thing. Uh, I like these sheets, they were sheets that a girlfriend bought for me, but they've been around for a while. And the, the people with the black mesh nylon bags. Uh, They obviously, they wanted the foot and I resisted, but they did damage the sheet. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there is this interconnection between the worlds. And I think that's what we all have to be alert to is that ah, there's just not one world. Forget reality tunnels, there's just not one world, you know, Mm -hmm. there just isn't one world. There are many creatures, many beings, many entities, many ideas, and as Ulysses S. Grant said, many motivations.